Welcome to the Imago Day Community Podcast. Good morning, Imago Day. Good to see you. Let's give a big welcome to everybody online this morning. Welcome everybody online. Uh, one of the things that I want to um, mention to you today, I don't know, if you've been here for some time, uh, you may know uh, a man by the name of Tim Wagner. Tim, I want to show you a picture of Tim. This is Tim. Tim's led Wild Hope. He actually started the ministry here uh, 17 years ago. Tim joined Imago when we were probably about 50 people, um, mostly 19-year-olds. And Tim joined us. I thought for sure he was in this like welcome meeting. I was like, this dude's going to bail so fast. And, um, and, and a couple years later, he said, this was the church that I had been praying for that would come uh, to Portland. Over the years, Tim served and prayed and has modeled faith for all those young people and um, started Wild Hope, which was just going downtown and loving kids on the street, taking them socks, taking them candy, building relationships, taking groups of people out. Uh, Tim did that for 17 years, recently handed off the ministry. You probably didn't talk to Tim or get to know Tim. He's the quietest dude in the world, right? He just served and prayed. He was on the prayer team for Nepal. He prays for everybody, um, but just a very quiet dude. And I remember years ago just, you know, watching him always behind the scenes, always serving, always loving, just the most faithful, probably one of the most faithful believers I've ever met. Uh, and, and went through really incredibly difficult things in his own personal life. Tim, a couple years ago, was diagnosed with cancer and is in the final days, in the final days of that fight. I was with him uh, a week ago and talked to him on the phone yesterday, you know, just reminiscing about life and, and all his time and his ministry and and he said, I am, I am so ready to go and be with Jesus. This is what I have believed for, for all these years. And yesterday he told me, I am, I feel like I am halfway already there. Like I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm halfway to heaven right now. Um, it is a, it's a great loss to us, obviously. And you know, one of the things that we don't do is much fanfare at Imago. We're just not that church. But I had um, asked the elders if uh, we could do something for Tim, uh, just to honor him and to honor his faithfulness and the mark that he made on us for the last 20 years as such a young church. The Ankeny building is a building that we just named because it's on Ankeny. And um, it's a place that we serve, people go, they serve, they serve each other, they're quiet, it's behind the scenes. And we made a, we made a kind of vote with the elders really on the, on the fly so that we could share this with Tim, but that the Ankeny building will now be officially called the Wagner building after Tim Wagner. <laughs> 
So brother, if you're watching, we love you and we thank you and we will see you on the other side, bro. We love you. When I told him, he's like, he just was like, what are you talking? He just, he was in tears and crying and he was like, I can't believe this. I mean, I never talked to anybody. I don't, you know. And then on the way out, he said, you know, this is the second building that's been named after me. <laughs> and the place where he works, when he had to retire early, named a building after him. <laughs> and I was thinking of Jesus' comment, like, the meek, Tim is meek. Like, he's that quiet, faithful guy. And Jesus says, the meek will inherit the earth. And Tim's got two buildings right now. So the hope is, as you walk in, there'll be kind of a, a, a picture of Tim and an explanation of his life. And as people enter into the Ankeny building to serve and to be served, they'll get to hear Tim's story and his life. And uh, we'll, we'll get to continue to live into the faith. It's the last thing that he would have probably wanted or thought about, which is probably why we're naming it after him. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter four. Uh, last week, Michelle was uh, taught through Hebrews chapter three, and where, where we're at in the book of Hebrews, to kind of catch you up, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know who the writer is, uh, there's a number of guesses, but he's writing to this Jewish community in Rome uh, around 60-ish A.D., and he is writing to encourage them not to go back on their faith. They are being tempted to kind of reject Jesus as their Messiah and to go back to um, Judaism and, and really to go back to their old way of life, in a sense, to a, a more comfortable way, a more familiar way. And the writer has shown us that God has spoken in the, these final days. He spoke through prophets and he spoke through the, the Torah, but he has spoken final and fully in his son Jesus, who is both the son of God, the Messiah, and this royal priest. So he's a, the son of God, meaning the king in the Davidic line, and this royal priest that will mediate for us that will stand between God and us on our behalf. And then he goes through these chapters to show that Jesus is superior to the angels that gave the, the first five books of the Bible to Moses. And he's superior to Moses over the house of Israel. And, and in chapter three, he was showing that one of the the real examples that he was, that the writer is challenging the people to do is to not make the same mistake that Israel made when they didn't trust God and go into the promised land after wandering in the wilderness, but they hardened their hearts against him. And that's where we pick up here in chapter four about entering the rest. And you're gonna hear this word rest over and over. It's kind of a, a strange word for us. Like what does it mean to enter the rest of God? Um, it, 
it's essentially saying I'm going to enter that safe place, that secure place, that place where God is, that God has created for me. For us, it's a pointing to heaven, to the final rest where we are with God. But the writer is using that picture to kind of to kind of instigate the Hebrews who are reading this right now to challenge them to faithfulness in Jesus. So I want us to read uh, 1 through 11, and then we'll talk through it. He says, Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, But the message they heard was of no value to them because they didn't share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since creation of the world. So for somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today, and this he did When a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. So there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Now, it's kind of a, it's kind of a confusing passage, and what essentially the writer is doing, he's going, there are these two stories. There is the story of Canaan and the story of creation, and he's Using Canaan, like when the, when the children of Israel were, were delivered from slavery in Egypt, they then went through the wilderness and they got to the promised land. And the promised land was to be for them the time that they experienced and received all the promises that God had made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They were going to enter the promised land, and it was going to become theirs. So they went in, and they sent 12 spies in. There's this kind of great story in the book of Numbers, and they send in 12 spies, and the 12 spies go in, and they get samples of the fruit and the vegetation, and they come back, and the grapes are like the size of grapefruits, and it's just like there's, this is the land of milk and honey. And they're like, the land is exceedingly great. We need to go in, as God has said. And yet 10 of the spies that went in said, yeah, the land's great, but there are huge people in there that are going to kick our butt. And we should not go in. And so they took a church vote, 
and God lost the boat. And the result was they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And the writer is using that picture of Canaan as the gospel preached to those who were in slavery. He's saying Canaan is a foreshadow of heaven and that gospel, that good news was proclaimed to them just as it was to us. The good news for us being that Jesus Christ is taking us through the wilderness of this life into heaven. And then he points to creation that God has been at rest since the seventh day of creation, whether that's literal or metaphorical, I don't wanna argue about that. It's just that God finished creation and he rested. And so when he says, they shall never enter my rest, the rest of God is that when he finished creation, he stopped and he enjoyed creation. And in the Jewish theology, there is a Sabbath rest where God celebrates his creation and salvation with the angels, and we are included in that. And he uses these two stories of Canaan and Israel to then invite us and invite these believers to consider the possibility that we too now should enter, should strive to enter this full and final rest of God which awaits us as we walk through this life faithfully trusting Jesus to get us there. And so the writer is writing about this rest, this safe, secure place where God keeps us both personally and communally. As Canaan was a foreshadow of heaven and creation is uh, inviting us to enter the rest of God, those who refused to trust God when they went into Canaan then were left to their own designs. They wanted to go back to Egypt. And the issue was that the rest those, those people were looking for was a rest from their enemies, a rest from being, uh, from having to fight, from being at war, from being antagonized. And so rather than go in and trust God that he will win the battle, what they wanted to do was go back to Egypt where they actually were enslaved and God had delivered them. They wanted a false rest over God's true salvation. And God allowed them to pursue that false rest in, their, in his judgment over them. And that generation died in the wilderness. And so the writer is using that to point to this heavenly rest that awaits these Hebrews, this community of Jesus followers in Rome. He says, that rest is still open to you. Now, the challenge for them wasn't Canaan, but there was a more immediate rest for this community. And it was a rest from the harassment of Rome that was always harassing them, taking property. It was morally corrupt. 
And so you can imagine this Jewish community in Judea, which is their land, having to submit themselves to Rome, where their culture and their history and their worship is always being undermined. And these zealots had arisen to say, we need to overthrow Rome. We need to go to war with Rome. We need to set up God's Jewish kingdom right here in Judea. And the writer is saying that that rest that you're seeking, that rest from Rome, from being harassed, from, from, from being able to you know, a victory meant that they would have their own culture, their own worship, their own history. And he says that rest, though, is temporary. And though it feels tangible, if you go back, it's turning your back on Jesus to establish a political rest by overthrowing Rome. And that rest is not, is, is actually hardening hardening your heart towards God's true eternal rest. And so what they were doing essentially was going to reject Jesus as Messiah and join these Jewish zealots in taking on Rome in the Judean war. And he says to seek that rest is to harden your heart to God who offers us this true eternal rest in Jesus. It's to reject Jesus' kingdom, which is larger and lasting and forever than this temporary rest in Jesus. In fact, later in the book, he says, we are receiving an unshakable kingdom. To seek that false rest was to harden your heart to God's true rest in Jesus. Instead, what were they supposed to do? They were supposed to persevere in faith. They were supposed to strive, as verse 11 says, to enter that rest, meaning trust that God will bring you into his own Sabbath rest. He will take care of you. And today, if you hear his voice, that's available to you. So lean into that to trust him and to persevere no matter what suffering comes. Now, as we listen to this word, this is a word for the church. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is not a word for you. This is a word for the church. And the invitation to enter this rest is a word for us too. And the reality is that persevering in faith while suffering rejection or harassment is not something that the American church is good at or even willing to do, if we're honest. And instead, it seems that both on the left and the right, what, what the American church does is wage war at some sort of political or social battle with a goal of finding an easier rest for their faith 
for our faith to fit nicely in at this moment. If we can vote this in, if we can elect him, if we can cancel them, if we can malign that, if we can be at rest, comfortable and secure in our beliefs winning the day. But like the Hebrews community, these are temptations to seek a false rest. Canaan, now remember, when they, when they were about to enter the promised land, the vast majority voted to not go in. In fact, there were only three out of a million plus uh, Israelites who said to go in, Moses and Caleb and Joshua, right? Everybody else voted against going in. And so we can't think that because a majority of Christians are fighting these false fights, it means they're right. Majorities never sway Jesus. And so the message to us and to them is that Jesus' kingdom is unshakable and it's coming and his rest is open for us today. So don't harden your heart by choosing a false rest. But persevere in faith. Strive to enter and God himself will bring you in But Jesus' rest is never going to come from us trying to escape suffering or unease or discomfort or harassment of our faith. Now, I hear lots of objections in my head as I was going through this. Like, are we supposed to then condone immorality? Are we supposed to sit back and just let injustice happen? Are we supposed to let political opponents who have, have their way when we believe that they are offending God? Are we to sit by while greed destroys people and the environment and the list could go on and on? In other words, when our faith is threatened and the conditions that we live in grow more hostile and immoral, shouldn't we fight against that? And I have three answers that I would give you. One would be, when the issues that we fight for become a way to lift up other people who suffer, meaning we're joining in other people's suffering and in love we're, we're lifting them up. That, those kinds of fights don't usually result in thinking we're building a kingdom. They usually result in longing for the kingdom to come. But what I would say is when the issue that we fight for becomes a way for us to secure our faith and remove hostility, to normalize our faith in this moment, we're in danger of exchanging God's true rest for a false rest. And what we end up doing is we end up losing the plot, meaning we turn this kingdom into the kingdom. And I think we're in danger, this scripture is saying we're in danger of hardening our heart towards God's invitation to persevere 
and strive to enter his rest by trusting Jesus despite what we suffer to get us through. The second thing I would say to those objections is that the American church desperately needs a vision of faithfulness and perseverance, this kind of faithfulness and perseverance from the global church. David Brooks, I don't know if you saw the article in the New York Times this week, David Brooks wrote an article called, Can These Evangelicals Save Their Movement? And it was listed a few different evangelicals that um, weren't going kind of hard right. And, and he, he interviewed Mark Laberton, who is the president of Fuller, and Laberton just kind of notes that some of the students that are coming from around the globe, that the, the, the future of the Christian church has actually moved in terms of, of where, where it is growing and where the favor of God seems to be. He says, the future of the Christian church is not gonna look like the past. Today, many of the most dynamic sectors of the faith are in immigrant communities and in Korean and African and Hispanic churches, for example. And in the decades of ahead, the American church is going to look a lot more like the global church. At Fuller Seminary, that future is already here, and that changes a lot. For example, after ISIS launched a series of deadly attacks against the Egyptian Christians, uh, which Fuller has a, a large group of Egyptian Christians there. Some of the Americans at, at Fuller wanted to hold memorial services for them. And the Egyptian students said, in effect, what are you talking about? This is cause for celebration. This is about acknowledging what it means to live as a Christian in a context in which you have the privilege of martyrdom. That idea is foreign to most American Christians, but the Egyptians led a celebratory service which was followed by communion in the form of a Japanese tea ceremony, meaning they, they were giving communion to their, their dead brothers and sisters who had been martyred by ISIS. The point being is that we need to learn from our global brothers and sisters what it means to persevere and strive to enter his rest. Where did they get this idea from that we don't mourn and weep and, and oh, this is so horrible, but they're celebrating. Where did they get that idea? They got it from the Bible. Because the Bible tells us that when you suffer for Christ, you count it a privilege to join in his suffering. When Jesus stood before the ultimate powers, he didn't try to overthrow them. He suffered them and then overcame them through resurrection. God wants to bring us as a people into his Sabbath rest finally and fully and we are called to persevere right now despite whatever suffering or harassment or discomfort, trusting that Jesus, the Son of God, who suffered for us and overcame, will get us there. 
And, and, and that sounds nice, but you need to hear the warning that if we harden our hearts, if we refuse to trust that, and we grab on to these false fights as a way to getting a false rest now, we will be judged by God. That's what the writer's saying. In verses 12 through 14, it seems like he goes off on a tangent and just starts talking about the Bible. Uh, he, says in, he says this in verse 12. He says, for the word of God is alive and active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, his word is the thing that got Israel out of Egypt. His word is the thing that could have gotten them into Canaan. His word is the thing that came into the world and became flesh and died on the cross and rose again. And it is that word that is alive and active, but also is so sharp that it can probe and diagnose and penetrate, that it can, it can, it can judge the, the atoms in between your attitudes and the nanometers between your thoughts. Like it is, God knows everything about you more than you know yourself. So this isn't about you arguing with each other, arguing with me, arguing with Facebook about trying to prove your point. This is about us standing before God who knows everything about us. And it means that he is able both to bring us into his rest if we will trust him and also he will know if we have hardened our heart against him and we don't trust him and we're clinging to some other false rest. And I sit there and I hear that and I don't just hear that for you, I hear that for me and I'm like, oh, okay, what do I do now? And then the writer doesn't leave us there, but he takes us to 14 through 16, which I'll unpack more next week, but I, it's important that we go there. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, meaning Jesus right now is reigning at the Father's side, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but, one, but, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. We are just, he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What the writers of Hebrews is saying is what we do now is that thankfully we have Jesus who right now is in heaven and he is on our side 
and he knows exactly the temptation to escape suffering. He had it. Satan gave it to him before he started his ministry. He felt it in the garden before he went to the cross, and yet he didn't give in to it. He persevered and bore the cross and conquered the grave, and now he sits in heaven. And so what we do right now is what our Egyptian brothers and sisters did after losing their loved ones. We hold fast to Jesus. It's what Tim is doing right now as he faces his final days. We hold fast to Jesus. And secondly, we approach God's throne with confidence in Jesus so we can receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. In other words, what do we do right now? We run to Jesus. We cling to Jesus. We hold on to Jesus. Because Jesus is going to not only get us out of the temptation to choose a false rest, but he is going to strengthen us so we can persevere to the end. And in response, I just want to call us to two invitations that this passage kind of invites us to. There are two verses in, in this passage that point to really strong invitations. The first is, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And the second is that you can... Go to the throne of grace in your time of need to receive grace and mercy. And today, what I want to announce to you, brothers and sisters, and to myself, is God is merciful today. He is ready to forgive us. He is ready to receive us in Jesus. There is no one we need to convince there is no one we need to argue with. There's no fight we need to take up. We just need to come to Jesus, the one who suffered unjustly at the hands of immoral men so that he could bring us into his Father's rest. And if you hear him today, you need to surrender to him. And if you find yourself in this time of need understanding that I have chosen false rest. I have rejected, I've hardened my heart towards this God who is capable of judging every thought and attitude about me. I need grace right now. Then brothers and sisters, I would, I would invite you, I, I would call, I'd beseech you, whatever word you wanna use, to, to come to the throne of grace, right? to lean on Jesus and ask him for his mercy because he will pour it out by his Holy Spirit today. Amen.